word democracy for themselves? Who gave them the right to claim the word democracy? Democracy is our word. Who gave them the right to destroy the word human with their propagandic phrase human rights? Human rights is our word. That's our phrase. They shouldn't sully these words in their mouths. Democracy. What democracy? What democracy? The democracy of money. The democracy of money. Buying elections. Bribing politicians. That's this democracy. How can you claim to be a democracy when you have people who are hungry in your country? How can you claim to be a democracy when you have people who are hungry in your country? How is that a democracy? What kind of perversion makes you say democracy when you allow people to be hungry, when you allow them to have no houses? Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumpy, filling in by invitation from my sister and comrade, the host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. You just heard from Vijay Prashad, author, historian, executive director of Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research and the chief editor of the Left Word Books, speaking at Democracy Beyond the U.S. Empire, hosted by the People's Forum at the famed Riverside Church in Harlem, New York City. We live in a global world. We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Pro-Moscow officials say residents in all four occupied areas of Ukraine voted to join Russia. The Kremlin-orchestrated votes have been dismissed by Ukraine and its Western allies. As illegitimate. The vote count in favor of becoming part of Russia was high, according to Russia installed elections officials, 93% in the Zaporizhia region, 87% in southern Kherson, 98% in Luhansk. And the UN Security Council met Tuesday in New York to discuss the voting, with U.S. and Albania planning to introduce a resolution that says results will never be accepted and the four regions remain part of Ukraine. Eileen Alfandari has more. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the United Nations Security Council via video link. He denounced the Russian-administered referenda in Donetsk, Luhansk, Saporizhia, and Kherson. He spoke through a UN translator. In front of the eyes of the whole world, Russia is conducting this so-called sham referenda on the occupied territory of Ukraine. People 
are forced to fill out some papers while being threatened by submachine guns. Zelensky said the referenda and Russian attempts to annex Ukrainian territory rule out any talks with Moscow as long as Vladimir Putin remains president. He also called for Russia's complete isolation and tough new global sanctions. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said she and Albania are teaming up on a resolution they will bring to the U.N. Security Council. A resolution condemning the sham referenda, calling on member states not to recognize any altered status of Ukraine. Russia's ambassador defended the vote as a long-awaited move to protect the right of Russian speakers in the four provinces. The referendum were conducted exclusively transparently. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. Over 194,000 Russian nationals have entered Kazakhstan, Georgia, and Finland in the week since President Vladimir Putin announced a partial mobilization of reservists to fight in Ukraine. Thousands fled to neighboring countries, most often by car, bicycle, or on foot. Hurricane Ian is barreling towards the Florida coast, gaining top winds of 155 miles per hour, just shy of a Category 5 hurricane after battering the island of Cuba as a near Category 4, wiping out power across the entire island. Cuban officials evacuated 50,000 people. Florida officials ordered 2.5 million people to evacuate their homes along the southwest coast. Here's Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. When you have five to ten feet of storm surge, uh, that is not something that that you want to be a a part of. And um, Mother Nature is a very fearsome uh, 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 adversary. President Joe Biden also declared an emergency. My administration is on alert and in action to help the people of Florida. I've approved Florida's request for emergency assistance immediately upon receiving it from the governor when they received it. And I directed my team to surge federal assistance there before the storm hit. FEMA has already deployed 700 personnel to Florida, and the governor has activated 5,000 state National Guard with another 2,000 guards coming from other states. Tampa and St. Petersburg could get their first direct hit by a major hurricane since 1921. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell warned Hurricane Ian will linger over Florida, causing even more damage. Ian is moving toward western Florida at approximately 12 miles per hour. And at this time, we are expecting landfall somewhere between Fort Myers and Tampa. By the time it reaches the shores of Florida, the storm is going to slow down to approximately five miles per hour. And this is significant because what this means is that Floridians are going to experience the impacts from this storm for a very long time. Criswell says officials are anticipating significant rainfall up to 25 inches in some isolated parts of the state. European Union's top diplomat says the bloc suspects damage to two underwater natural gas pipelines with sabotage and is warning of retaliation for any attack on Europe's energy networks. Energy companies are beefing up security. Seismologists say that explosions rattled the Baltic Sea before unusual leaks were discovered on two underwater natural gas pipelines running from Russia to Germany. The Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines are leaking but are not currently delivering fuel to Europe. They stand to decimate the ocean environment. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And those were today's news headlines. It is an absolute joy to be joined by my brilliant and committed comrade, Marolo de los Santos. 
Manolo is the co-executive director of the People's Forum and a researcher at the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research. He co-edited most recently, Vivermos, Venezuela versus Hybrid War, and Comrade of the Revolution, Selected Speeches of Fidel Castro. He is a co-coordinator of the People Summit for Democracy, most recently held here in Los Angeles in June. Welcome, Comrade. Thank you so much, Comrade Nana, for welcoming to your program this morning. Thank you so much for joining us on Sojourner Truth. There is so much that is happening, and I want to see how much we can get in in this time period. We started off the show with a rousing, provocative commentary by author and historian Vijay Prashad speaking at the community meeting on democracy beyond U.S. empire that was held in Harlem just this past Saturday evening. I want to play another slightly longer clip just so that we can get into the meat of that conversation. Yes, I think there's a lot to be talking about, and I'm glad that we can talk about it together. Absolutely. We can play that clip. 200 years ago, the United States decided that it owns the Americas. Coup d'etat after coup d'etat after coup d'etat. From Guatemala to Brazil to Chile, Operation Condor. How many governments have you overthrown today, Joe? How many governments have you overthrown today, Joe? How many illegal aggressive wars have you sanctioned, Joe? Did you vote to illegally bomb and destroy Iraq, Joe? Did you bomb illegally Libya and destroy that country, Joe? What are you doing today, Joe? Mediocre. Destroying the world and calling that democracy. That is not democracy. That is a perversion of the idea of democracy. The Monroe Doctrine next year, 200 years. When is this country going to grow up? When is this country going to grow up? When is this country going to recognize that it actually is not a country on the hill? Give it up. You're just ordinary people. You're just people. You're just like the Mexicans. You're just like the Cubans. You're just like the Venezuelans. Relax. There's nothing special about the United States. Relax, guys. Relax. Relax. Take it easy. You'll have a lot less stress. Relax. You don't need a Monroe Doctrine. You don't need a global Monroe Doctrine. We don't need global NATO. We don't need US warships in the South China Sea. We don't need that. We don't need any of that. We don't want war. We want peace. Let me tell you something strange. I know that the United States spends almost a trillion dollars every year on war making. Almost a trillion dollars. But do you know what the budget of the United Nations is? Do you know what the budget of the United Nations? United Nations is supposed to be an institution, a global institution to build peace. The United Nations annual budget, my friends, is $3 billion. 
three billion dollars to build peace one trillion dollars just by the united states to produce war you can't eat in this country you can't find a house to live in in this country you can't go to school and study without going to debt in this country but you can bomb any country in the world well done well done guys the greatest country in the world is the greatest country not because there's no hunger in it but because you can destroy any other country in the world well done those are your values the values of a country are not to be measured by its constitution the values of a country are to be measured by its budget and the united states spends half its budget trying to destroy the world it spends half its money trying to destroy the world and then wags the finger and talks about democracy do you see how strange this looks from outside the united states do you see how weird this is people look at this and think who's this guy biden this is crazy he's mediocre he's wagging his finger he's telling us about democracy and right outside my window is a warship that's ready to destroy my family he was breaking it down wasn't he <laughs> tell us comrade what was the purpose firstly of that community forum um where uh vijay spoke so um strongly there in Har harlem democracy beyond the u.s empire well i think we were gathering for something that, that often gets denied to us who live inside the United States, which is the opportunity to dialogue directly with the leaders, with the activists, with the organizers, with the people of other countries who are actively trying to build a new model of development. We're trying to build new systems in which people can live with dignity. So it was a rare opportunity that we had to actually be in the same room with leaders from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Eritrea, and actively have the opportunity to exchange with them, to hear about how they've been building their own models of democracy and to not chastise them because we have no legitimacy or credibility to be talking to anyone else when it comes to the questions of democracy, knowing very well what it is like to live under the boot of the empire here inside the United States. There was a lot of myth busting that was happening which um you know i really appreciated as you indicated we don't get that much opportunity those of us living in the united states to have direct dialogue and to hear nuance and so you know i know we there's discussions for example about cuba and what's really happening in cuba share with us first of all um who were the people that were present from cuba that you know were engaging in this conversation because it wasn't just any old anybody's <laughs> and, and and then sort of a couple of the myths that you know that we have here in the united states around cuba that you you know are really important to be um, busted well one of the amazing things is that we were able to we had to, we were honored to have the presence of the foreign ministers of cuba and venezuela comrade bruno rodriguez of cuba Comrade Carlos Faria of Venezuela. And it was moving to hear them speak about everything that's happening in their countries right now, despite the level of sanctions, the blockades, the hostility, the open aggression that they receive from the US government. 
I mean, this was Saturday night of this was Saturday night, the 24th of September on the eve of one of the most historic and I would say groundbreaking elections referendums to have ever taken place in Cuba when, you know, close to 7 million people came out to vote on something called the Code of Families, one of the most progressive legal projects ever, where Cuba is essentially redefining the concept of family and the rights of women and the rights of LGBTQ people and the rights of everyone to basically be able to form unions made out of love and be respected for doing so. It's probably the most progressive code of its kind in the world. And again, this was an election in which millions of people participated. That is in itself a, a busting of a major myth that somehow in Cuba there is no democracy, that there is no popular participation. But I think the bigger myth that was busted or, or the bigger political point that was shared was that for the Cubans and for the Venezuelans, the question of democracy is not one of going to vote every four years. It's not one of simply putting money on which candidate you think would do best for your interest. Democracy for the people of Cuba and Venezuela continues to be an experiment in terms of how can people actually lead the transformation of their own lives and how can they do, though, do so collectively in a way that is beneficial to the community. That in itself was just an amazing experience hearing from them. And, you know, it, it just, it's in stark contrast to what this country is living. I mean, as we speak, the rights of over half of the population, women have been denied. Women are losing rights in this country by the day. Black people in this country are losing their rights by the day. Yet these are societies that are going, I guess, in the wrong direction, according to US Empire, because they're seeking to include more and more people in their project of development and, and benefit for society. And I love how they describe and how you're describing what is happening as a project, right? Because with the United States and the way that the United States describes itself is usually, um, you know, in a way that doesn't have any kind of sense of vulnerability. It's, you know, we're the ones, we're it, we're number one, we got it all together, we know how to do this thing, we define what things are such as democracy and human rights, and really to hear, again, the nuanced conversations about what is happening in Cuba, what is happening in Venezuela from people who are in high office in those governments, the foreign ministers themselves, was really um, compelling, I think. Let's talk a little bit about Venezuela, and then I want to get um, to the Cuba blockade, because, you know, Venezuela is a country that the United States has obviously also um, put into this effort of isolation, but in a different kind of way. I mean, going so far as to pretend that someone is a president that isn't a president, right? And um kind of move in that way, apply sanctions, and really try to, to cripple Venezuela. Can you share some with us of what we learned about Venezuela and what's happening in Venezuela, particularly in, in, in light of or in spite of the sanctions um, that the U.S. has put up there? 
Well, it's important to highlight the fact that, you know, Cuba has been facing a blockade for the last 60 years, 60 years plus. And a variety of sanctions have been placed on Cuba during that period. Venezuela has received probably the same equivalent of sanctions or harsher in an even shorter period of time, meaning in the last six years, they have received a multitude of sanctions and unilateral coercive measures that essentially have left the country without 99% of its revenues. I'm going to say that again. Venezuela, due to U.S. sanctions and the U.S. blockade, has lost 99% of its revenue, meaning the resources that the Venezuelan state would normally be using to provide social programming, to meet the needs of its people, to import food, to import medicine, to provide, again, for the most basic necessities of the people, they've been, their hands have been cut off in a sense. And to think that despite that, they have not renounced their project of building a people's democracy in which, as I was reminded on Saturday night, since 1999, there have been 29 elections that have taken place in Venezuela. And when I say elections, I'm talking about elections in which there's been mass participation, high voter turnout, and where people are actively participating at all levels. Something which is, again, unseen, not just in the United States, but I would say it's unseen in many parts of the world. But they've introduced other elements of democracy, which I think we could learn from in the United States. The foreign minister spoke about how Venezuelan democracy includes, for example, the right to reparations, which is a hot topic in debate across the global north. But here's this poor country, reduced in its resources, still taking on the question of reparations as a historic necessity towards Afro-descendants in Venezuela. They talked about democracy in the light of having access to healthcare and how even though they've been, again, without many resources, they have prioritized providing healthcare to those who need it the most without charging a cent. To me, these are highlights of what democracy could look like in the United States if the interests of the ruling class of the elites in this country weren't the dominating ones. What it would look like if poorer and working people, if Black people and women could actually run this society for the benefit of all. It was really interesting, particularly the question of reparations. Surprising that it came up not just because of the fact that there has been this reduction in the economic resources of Venezuela, but because there's so often a conversation when we talk about countries in South America, countries in Central America, um, countries in the Caribbean that are Spanish speaking in particular, so much of a conversation of the invisibilization of Black folks and um, you know, they talked about that as well, both with Cuba and Venezuela, the efforts to really squarely address racism and squarely address um, the conditions that African descendants in those countries are in. And so that reparations question, very, very interesting. Um, I have a question about the blockade as well. So as you raised this blockade against Cuba, 50 years old, 
this uh, conversation that was had with the foreign minister of Cuba and the foreign minister of Venezuela had as its backdrop and maybe foredrop the United Nations General Assembly, which was also in session um, that same week, last week. And there were world leaders from across the planet that were there. It's, it's their time to get together and often to lift their voices about issues that they're concerned about. And leader after leader after leader in their presentation before the entire General Assembly condemned the U.S. blockade of Cuba. Let's play that clip, please. South Africa calls for an end to the embargo against Cuba. We again join the overwhelming majority of members of the international community in reiterating Guyana's rejection of the sanctions imposed on the Republic of Cuba. We entreat the United, United States to end the long-standing embargo imposed on Cuba. Otra muestra clara de la aplicación de medidas unilaterales es el inhumano y criminal bloqueo comercial y financiero contra Cuba. Argentina se suma al reclamo de los pueblos de Cuba y Venezuela para que se levanten los bloqueos que esas naciones padecen. Pregonamos el retorno al respeto a la autodeterminación de los pueblos rechazando el infame y brutal bloqueo al pueblo de la hermana República de Cuba. Namibia reiterates its long-standing call for the lifting of the unjust embargo against Cuba. I call once again for the total lifting of the embargo that has affected the government and the people of Cuba. El gobierno de los Estados Unidos continúa ignorando la demanda casi unánime de ustedes para que cese su política ilegal y cruel contra Cuba. Let's talk about that. Why do you think the majority of countries at the United Nations consistently call for the end of the U.S. blockade of Cuba? Well, firstly, because no one else in the world thinks Cuba is a threat or is a danger. No one else in the world sees Cuba as an enemy. On the contrary, when you look around the world, when you ask not just leaders of states or governments around the world, but when you ask people around the world, the usual first reference they have when you ask them about Cuba is doctors or teachers or aid. People identify, the people of the world identify Cuba as being a country that is generous in its solidarity with the peoples of the third world. The fact that Cuba has essentially sent medical brigades possibly to all corners of the third world, to the places where Doctors often don't go, the Cubans will often go. And that story can be heard from Nepal, it can be heard in South Africa, it can be heard in Ghana, it can be heard all over the third world. And I think that's why ultimately it's it's a resounding call that the world makes. And I would add that it's the 30th year in which the Cubans will introduce a resolution against the blockade. And for 30 years, the majority of the world in the last few years, almost a unanimous vote. Only two countries opposed this resolution to end the U.S. blockade on Cuba, being the United States and Israel. Imagine that this is going to be the 30th year in which this resolution is proposed. And again, we suspect that again, only the United States and Israel will be the countries to, to vote against it. 
Just amazing. And it just lets you know that this conversation about democracy um, is really a joke um, when it comes out of the United States and what it expects, not just for our people here that are living within the United States, but even within those larger bodies that represent um, all of our countries. Um, We have the clip lined up. I think it's important for folks to be able to hear Um, Again, these are leaders from all over the world, from the continent of Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, South America, Central America, um, speaking up and out. I believe we even have some countries from Europe um, in this clip speaking up and out against the U.S. blockade of Cuba. Let's get that clip. That's just a smidgen, just a sample, a small taste of the leader after leader after leader speaking up against the U.S. blockade of Cuba, describing it as illegal, describing it as criminal in as many languages as you can imagine. Comrade, how do people contact you if they want to join in the people's effort to have democracy beyond U.S. empire and to support the end of the blockade and sanctions against Cuba and Venezuela? Well, I encourage everyone to take a look at our social media, the social media of the People's Forum, as well as our website. Right now, in fact, we have launched a major fundraising campaign uh, to support the people of Cuba in their recovery from the most recent hurricane, Ian, that has just pummeled through Cuba, has affected greatly uh, the housing situation and also the energy grid in the country. But we are committing to support and stand by the Cuban people. And we have a fundraiser. Um, you can look at it at peoplesforum.org slash fundraiser. And every donation, every cent that is donated is going to go to provide roofing material, to provide other supplies that the Cuban people urgently need and that the U.S. blockade denies them. Thank you so, so very much again. Really appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, comrade. We'll be back to dive into the crisis in Puerto Rico after this short station break. This is not a jumpy today's guest host of Sojourner Truth. And we are now turning to the crisis in Puerto Rico, where a hurricane, Hurricane Ian, has devastated the population and the island there. Let's go to a clip. 
The majority of us still don't have power and there are people dying. A 72 year old man and his 93 year old mother died after their house caught fire from candles they were using for lights. In another town, a man died after his generator exploded. And another man and his dog died after breathing in the gases from his generator. I haven't made videos about these cases because they're truly heartbreaking and unnecessary, but it is a crisis situation. There are hospitals and healthcare facilities that are still running on generators. And people are struggling to find fuel for their generators. And we don't know when all of Puerto Rico will have power again. We're tired and we're worried. Francisco Andres Santiago Cintron is the coordinator of Acción Independista, a member of Vamos Concertación Guidiana and the community coordinator of the Red Comunitaria Respuesta, which groups more than 13 communities around Puerto Rico on the principle of solidarity and sovereignty. He is also executive editor of the Puerto Rican progressive journal, Critica, Cuaderno de Discusión Política. Greetings and welcome, Francisco. Greetings. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to, to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Really concerned about what is happening in Puerto Rico. I was just there this last summer, still seeing the after effects even of Maria and hurricanes before and can't imagine what is going on in the country now. If you could please just start by giving us a picture. We heard that clip um, from Bianca Graulau, who is currently an independent broadcast journalist based in Puerto Rico, but wanting to hear from you. What is the situation there? The situation here is basically a compounded uh, reality of human crisis that were really never completely resolved with previous crises. Um, just to give you a general uh, reality, you know, even before the Hurricane Maria in 2017, we had we have a economic depression since 2005. That when at that that came after what came after was a crisis of debt, and after that, what we have had are neoliberal policies. Now, why do I go all the way back there? to talk about what's happening now. And it's because the reality is that, you know, in the, in the, uh, the reality of the Caribbean has always, has always been a reality of knowing that natural disasters on one, one moment or another would come. No hurricanes have always been part of our reality uh, as, as the Caribbean. Notwithstanding the human crisis that comes afterwards does not have necessarily have to have a correlation with that natural disaster, but with the ability of governments to respond to that reality, you know, and those neoliberal policies that be, that happened even before Maria, in re, and, and we compounded you know, with the reality of colon, colonialism and the reality of poverty that has always been here in Puerto Rico, have led to what we have now, which is just a continuation of the human crisis that we had even before. Um, in terms of, of real numbers, no, we have had right now at least 20, 21 confirmed deaths related to the human crisis that occurred after Hurricane Fiona, which is the the, the last human can, hurricane that came. And we've had right now at least 30 to 40 percent of the population in Puerto Rico without uh, um, energy. Well, and this is important also because in the statistically wise, um, they are right now. The government is saying that they have actually done a whole a great job, no, in that process. But in the streets, what we see is, is something very different. 
in as much there's also one element that has to be talked about in this new emergency, and it's that in the last year, the Puerto Rican Power Authority was largely privatized, except for the generation of electricity, commercial and distribution of electricity were privatized and were passed to a company now known as Luma, L-U-M-A. And in this last year, um, Puerto Ricans have seen constant blackouts in different sectors of the island, which had led to economic stress even before the passing of Hurricane Fiona. And so with the passing of Hurricane Fiona, what we've had is just a complete intensification of the, the stresses that people live day by day. No? Yeah, no, I, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking, when I was in law school, I had a friend who was from the U.S. Virgin Islands, and we used to fight, and what I'm talking about fight, almost rolled down the hallways, um, about the benefit of having being a colony of the U.S. Because as a person from Ghana, what is not a colony of the U.S., but still deals with neoliberal policies imposed by the World Bank, IMF, et cetera, I was looking at what was happening in the Virgin Islands with infrastructure, looking at what's happening in Puerto Rico with infrastructure, looking at what was happening at the time, is it the 90s and infrastructure in Ghana? And I was saying, hey, I don't see where you're getting a benefit. And in fact, at least we're independent. Um, talk about that, because so much of what needs to happen to address the human crisis, as you've described, which is something different than the, the conversation about climate crisis, et cetera, in a way. But the human crisis, you know, hands seem to be tied. The people um, I know, and I want to ask you about what they're doing on the ground, but, you know, it seems that the co colonial nature of Puerto Rico is definitely getting in the way. It undoubtedly is. And I'll give you two examples. And when we talk about the reality here on the ground, I might say that we have two Puerto Ricos. No, and depending who you ask, you will have a whole different uh, story. No, you have the rich Puerto Rico, no, the Puerto Rico that that that, that practices in a way gentrification and settler colonialism in at least in the last few years in a more intense way. And I'll give you an example. Right now, for example, in Puerto Rico, we have a law that's called Law Number Sixty. It was before that it was called Law Number Twenty and Twenty Two. And what that that law does is that any person that comes from outside. No, normally it, it was normally catered to and it's still catered to uh, U.S. citizens, no rich U.S. citizens in mainland United States that come to Puerto Rico and, uh, and, and can um, prove that they live at least six months in Puerto Rico will have a tax deduction where zero, where they will have to pay zero percent of their winnings in that year in Puerto Rico. No. And not only that, but the same law establishes that if there is an emergency like the one we have been living in Puerto Rico, a hurricane, they can just leave the country for for at least one, two, three months, and that will still count as the six months necessary for living here. No, that's an example. Another example is that in that process of gentrification, and I can tell you, for example, the 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 percents of generation of, of electric generation right now. At least 90% of all electrifications have, have happened in the north and in the metropolitan area of Puerto Rico, no? the, the capital and its nearby uh, towns and suburbs. But if we, when you look at the southwest of Puerto Rico, um, from Ponce to Mayagüez in the coast, that actually, in, according to the last census, is the most uh, poverty-stricken area of the country, 
Right now, no more than 50% of that part of the country has electricity. So we're looking at a structural realities that perpetrate not only uh, poverty, but colonialism, no? And uh, and there is uh, broad support by both uh, actual the, the current government in Puerto Rico and the U.S. government in perpetuating that reality. And that is part of the reset that we see that humanitarian crisis occurring right now. And just and so to the, answer the, the question. Yes, go, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. And to answer the question, I, I will I would also uh, fight with, with that person of you as Virgin Islands, because I um, I'm also of the posture that you know the colonial relationship, be it with the US Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, or any of the Caribbean islands still under colon a colonial relationship has only profound negative effects in the lives of the people that live it. Oh, that's an important interruption, please. <laughs> that's not a problem because I think it's important for people to to hear that. Um, talk about in the next couple of minutes as we close out this section, talk about what the people are doing because whenever we have these humanitarian crises, the people themselves with a capital P pull together to get stuff done in support of each other and let us know what people can do here um, on the mainland if they want to support Puerto Ricans. What we're doing right now, at least in the in the street, and I think that was a big lesson after Maria, after Hurricane Maria, the, there's an important element, and is that with the neoliberal, before Hurricane Maria in 2016, Hurricane Maria was in 2017, because of the debt crisis, um, the Obama government with the Puerto Rican government passed a law that's called PROMESA law, which made it possible for the Puerto Rican government to go to default. And as you know, with the IMF, what that means is that they will condone part of the debt, but you have to have certain or, or broad neoliberal policies. And what that meant for Puerto Rico was broad budget costs for the different agent agencies no, that have as, as their reasons to exist uh, services for the population, no, for human rights, for the preservation of human rights. And so what we've had in that process is that even if those agencies exist, they exist nominally. They don't really have the capacity to carry out their functions because they don't have the budget to do so. And because of that reality, and when 2017 happened, that was under Trump, what we've had afterwards in Maria was a total uh, collapse of government services. And so in that process, uh, what happened was the communities realized what we have always known, no, but it, it just came back again um, from, from, from under the covers. And is that we have only ourselves in a certain way. And obviously the solidarity of people around the world, no, that, that when we've always counted at that, and I think that's something that we've always have to acknowledge, but in the ground, we've had ourselves in the capacity of us to organize and really look out after ourselves. And so that was the big lesson in Maria. Afterwards, we had uh, earthquakes in the South, the part that right now is not energized. And after that, we have the pandemic and now we have this rig. And what I want to say with this is that while it's happening right now in the ground is that those infrastructure, communal infrastructures that, that were created after Maria or that existed before Maria um, are right now just giving you no know, uh, and construction community power to just the, um, um, confront the crisis. And so my recommendation is just to get in contact with those organizations and directly uh, support in any way that they ask, you know, specifically uh, in those initiatives. Thank you so very much. How do people reach you if they want to be in contact with you? 
you could reach me at my email. Uh, it's uh, Francisco uh, at Vamos, that's V-A-M-O-S dot O-R-G. And you can also reach me in Facebook, Francisco Santiago uh, Cintron. Um, and that, and in, in that initiative is that is where we're canalizing, you no know, much of the solidarity that's coming, you no, know, in, in, in support of the communities that we work with. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. We're sending positive energy. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the space and lots already from our, we're here too. Thank you. If you're on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle at SoTrueRadio and visit our website for additional content at SoTrueRadio.org. My back is strong. Strong enough to take the pain Inflicted again and again What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah Aunt Sarah, this is the way they see us This is the way they see us Aunt Sarah, ready to take the pain again and again that was for women by the incomparable Nina Simone. This is Nana Jumpy, guest hosting for Margaret Prescott on Sojourner Truth. Pleased to be joined now by Tiffany Flowers. Tiffany Flowers is an organizer with A Day Without Us campaign, a longtime local and national abolitionist activist and organizer, as well as a DJ. You know, I got to get some music in for you, who has helped unionize Bernie Sanders staff create and launch the Breathe Act with Movement for Black Lives, and again, is organizing Day Without Us, a Black radical, womanist-led strike. Welcome, Tiffany. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me, Nana. Appreciate being here. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us, who is the us in the Day Without Us, and why are we taking off that day? I appreciate that question right out the gate. You know, the us is everybody who understands exactly what is happening right now. The us is all of the people who are sick and tired of being sick and tired. The us is the people who believe that we have a right to clean air, to fresh water, a reasonable expectation to free to to clean and reasonably priced housing. Those of us who have uh who who feel as though denying 50% of the population their humanity and bodily autonomy is completely unacceptable. Those of us who see what this Supreme Court, this completely, completely illegitimate court is doing and will continue to try to do to take and take from us. Those who are sick and tired of the systems that continue to rob us and as the kids say, play in our face. We're, we're sick and tired and we're done and we're doing something about it. And so this is happening September 30th. You got time. We got time, folks, to get ourselves organized. And what exactly is going on? I know it's not just one day technically, but what? give us a sense of what's happening with this day without us. Absolutely. So I'd first like to highlight the significance of the day, if that's all right. 
Um, on Friday, September 30th is actually the 46th anniversary of the Hyde Amendment, which I don't know if everybody knows, but it actually means that if you are a pregnant person and you are seeking an abortion, um, even if it means that you would lose your life and you are someone who is on government-assisted health care, you could not use that health care, again, even if it meant saving your life. And for 46 years, that's been a law, and it's an amendment that um, our opposition uses to sneak into other bills to try to uh, stop our progress. And so we thought it was important to, to, to do some education, first and foremost, and second of all, to do that education through the framework of reproductive justice, which I'm sure folks know is a phrase was that was coined and a framework that was coined by 12 Black women in the 90s. And that also, again, speaks to the idea that if we're to um, live in a society where all of us are free, that means we get to choose when, how, and if we start families and what that would mean for their future. So we're going to do some, some teachings. Um, a little bit untraditional in that it won't just be lecture style. There'll be a lot of conversations. There'll be a lot of organizations that work across movements in conversation, talking about how all of our work is connected. And much like everything we talked about earlier today, how we've got to stick together because the systems that want our, our opposition and the systems that want to work against us are certainly coordinated. So there's online education and offline um, activations across America on Friday. Excellent. So before I get you to tell us where or some of the places where people can plug in um, across the country, can you share with us what other organizations are engaged in this? Because I know this is like a coalition of groups, at least that are spreading the word and, and sharing information. I got the information that's shared by uh, my sister Judith uh, ED over at Advancement Project and just trying, you know, so I know that they're like cheerleading. Who else is on board here? Sure. Shout out to Judy um, um, at Advancement Project. We have the Alliance for Youth Action. We have Ben and Jerry's. We have Black Feminist Future. We have Black Feminist Project, which is um, up in the Bronx, Tanya Fields and the Alice Fields um, Community Center. We have Black Voters Matter. We have CPD Action. Color of Change, um, local groups like uh, an abolitionist-led Black woman group in D.C. called Harriet's Wildest Dreams, Moms Rising, the Movement for Black Lives, the list goes on and on. Um, survivors Know, The Frontline, the Universal Unitarian, Universal Unitarian Universalist Association, as well as Until Freedom D.C., um, so the 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 grouping that we have here is for a reason. Um, again, that we want to prove and demonstrate and live um, how our movements have to how we are truly one movement. We're one ecosystem. And Judy's work in in the advancement project and helping secure the ballot and making sure people can vote is as important as the work of Movement for Black Lives. It's a integral to that work as the March for Our Lives. And so. We're going to be in conversation and talking about how all of our work supports each other and helps us move that dial that much closer to liberation and the most urgent problem right now, which is reproductive freedom. Where across the country, if people are interested, and in, again, I'm not asking you to name every place because I know it's a lot of places, but <laughs> giving folks a sense of where, um, because this is a show that people hear across the country, 
where um, there are places that there are going to be some activations. And then if someone is interested in saying like, okay, I'm here, you know, I want to be a part of this in person, um, where do they plug in? Sure. There's um, an activation here in New York City. There's a, a one in Worcester, Massachusetts, Chicago, Los Angeles. Um, I'm unfortunately, because of what's happening right now with the hurricane, Miami is unlikely. Um, but Atlanta, there will be a pop up. North Carolina, there's a pop up. So if people want to plug in, please, please go to our website, daywithoutus.com. Um, and that's also where the programming will be. It will start at 12 p.m. on Friday and it will go straight through until four o'clock with different, like I said, panels, talks, information directly from the ground and organizers and organizational leaders who are doing this really important work. And then for those folks who are not, you know, in places where there are actual activations, um, number one, is there capacity or the ability to connect up with you all and try to get an activation together of some sort? Um, and then secondly, if you can only do it virtually, uh, what kinds of things can people expect in the virtual programming? Yes, you can still, it's not too late. You can still go onto our website, again, daywithoutus.com. And we have a very easy to navigate site and there's a drop down box for pop-ups. And all you have to do is fill out that form. There's a human being on the other side of that form by the name of Angela Peoples. And she is the pop-ups director and she will get back in touch with you. It's really um an expansive view of what pop-ups could be. So don't feel overwhelmed. You, We have some people that are just going to go out and register people to vote. We have other people who are going to be doing some community care and mutual aid. We have some people who are going to take advantage of the very generous offer by our partner, Ben and Jerry's, to give um, ice cream to local organizers who are hosting pop-ups to have an ice cream social and have some conversations and tabling about things happening in the community. So please go to our website, daywithoutus.com, click that pop-up drop-down box, send us a, a fill out the form real quick and we can get back to you before Friday. It's certainly not too late. And in terms of what you can expect with the programming, you can expect a very, very, very um, well thought out and loving presentation of the information um, that's going on across movements right now. Um, you will see Judy and you will see Cliff Albright and Miss Latasha Brown from um, the Advancement Project and Black Voters Matter, giving us a history and a framework and talking about how we got to this moment right now and everything that's truly at stake in terms of securing the ballot, being able to vote safely and securely and what that means or doesn't mean for our future. You'll hear from youth organizers around how they're organizing um, around gun violence and reproductive rights and community safety and reproductive rights. You'll hear from, we have a really exciting segment called People in Your Neighborhood. And here we're going to have lots and lots of quick but thoughtful conversations with people just like us who are doing this work every single day and letting folks know easy, easy ways to tap into the work. Woof, you've got, you all put out a lot of different possibilities, a lot of ways that people can get connected and can get involved um, and so as we close, I want to go back to what I started with, talking about A Day Without Us as a Black, radical, womanist-led strike. 
What does that mean? Because I think sometimes when we talk about something being Black, that's why I wanted to know who the us was um, so that people understand the expansiveness. Uh, but there is a tradition that this is rooted in that comes from Black um, radical womanist uh, praxis. So share with us briefly, what does that mean? Um, yeah, I think it's, thank you for noting that. And just using that phrase and that terminology is, is, is exactly what this day is about. Trying to, to, for folks to hear a phrase like that and be like, what does that mean? And for us to say, it really means exactly what you just said. We are black women. We are organizers. And oftentimes black women are organizers and don't even know it. Right. Who are the people that are collecting money in the church? Who are the people that are making sure people's, um, People are safe. Our elderly and sick are safe when storms and different disasters happen. Who are the people that are making sure people are getting in the car and going to vote and the kids are fed? And, the, you know, all of this work that we take on, um, this invisibilized work that we do in service of our society, in service of our families, and most importantly, in service of our communities, because we believe in a brighter future and what the actual possibility is. Um, and so, being Black women, seeing this fight and knowing, again, giving honor, giving honor, so much honor to the 12 Black women who came before us, who saw that reproductive justice is not about um, women and vaginas and abortion, but truly, truly about what the landscape looks for our community. So um, it's really about picking up that mantle, sharing that information with our folks and making sure people are firmly, firmly planted and grounded in the moment and what the possibilities are. Oh, we got to run or I would keep going. Please give that website again. And thank you so very much, Tiffany, for joining us. Thank you so much. Daywithoutus.com. Click on the pop-ups and come see us. We can put something together. Excellent. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. We are out of time. Gosh, always happens. I'd like to thank our guests of the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! This is your guest, host, Nana Jumpy.